0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome. It's time for TGIF DCT. If you are joining us here live on Clubhouse, welcome. We gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern time, so that we can cover a range of topics related to decentralized clinical trials and making research participation more accessible. These topics come from you, the folks in our community. And so if there are topics you'd love to see us cover, drop a message to myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, reach us through LinkedIn, Twitter, heck, even threads, or you can to Secretariat at dtra.org, Let us know if there's a topic you'd love to see, or if you'd love to join and be a guest in one of our upcoming episodes. If you're here on Clubhouse, our past episodes are here for your listening enjoyment, and you will find content there covering technical factors around interoperability and data flow, patient factors around experience, access, diversity, representation. We've had conversations around the environmental impact of clinical trials. We've had conversations around operational, regulatory, policy, privacy. The list goes on and on. Now, some of you may not be with us live on Clubhouse. You may be out there in the podcast universe, in which case, welcome to you as well. Be sure to follow the decentralized podcast on your podcast platforms. Give us a follow and you'll be able to get notified if we drop some additional content during the week. These are broadcast live on Clubhouse on Fridays and then they're dropped on those podcast platforms just a few days later. But our team is also busy grabbing some of the most listened to episodes on Clubhouse from last year and getting those out to you on those podcast platforms as well so we'll make sure that all that content is out there and available for you but the fun part about being with us here live on clubhouse is opening up the floor and so we'll follow our usual format here we'll spend about a half an hour with our guests discussing the topic of the week And then we're gonna be looking to you to open up the microphone. You'll see a little hand raising icon on the bottom of your Clubhouse app screen. And so at about half past, we'll look for the questions, feedback, and other experiences that you'd like to share. If you can't wait and you have something you just wanna jump in and share right now on Clubhouse, that's cool too. There's a little chat feature on the lower left. We'll keep an eye on the chat and look for what types of conversations are happening there as well. There's a lot going on there, Amir.
1: Absolutely. Happy Friday, everyone. And let me tell you, Craig, I'm particularly excited today because I don't think you can be in a room with retention Richie and not have fun. It certainly won't be boring. So I'm really looking forward to today.
0: Wow. there's uh, what, what are you excited about, about today's topic, Amir? Well, I
1: mean, the topic itself, obviously, everyone wants to learn more about AI, LLMs, etc. That's for sure. I think for us, Ritesh and Richie will bring different perspectives. They don't spend their day jobs running clinical trials, but I think they will bring us lots of different perspectives. I'm looking forward to hearing from the audience and getting them up and see what they're, how they're feeling. But uh, I think, you know, more recently, we've talked about how, you know, um, the keynote at DIA talking about AI, you know, it's definitely a lot of interest. And I think there's two camps of people there's those who are really close to it and they're really excited and, frankly, you know, really frightened. And then there's those who really haven't played with it yet at all, have no idea what, it, what it's about, quite honestly, apart from the hype they're hearing. So I think there is definitely still different camps, just like any new technology wave. But as we've been telling everyone, this one's a little different. Now, I don't think people can sit this one out. So looking forward to hear what insights through and Richie may have as they're not in our silo of clinical trials.
0: And Amir, of course, was mentioning the opening plenary from the DIA annual meeting that happened just a minute ago. I guess that was about a week and a half, two weeks. Uh, Junaid from Microsoft was chairing that. Amir uh, was on that panel with Najat Khan from uh, Janssen, Zach Kahane from Children's. Uh, I think his name was Arwen from Flagship. Really, uh, great conversation there. Uh, Jane, I know you were there in the audience. I was gonna introduce you, Jane, as the inquisitive Jane or the inquisitor. I'm not sure which way. We'll see you out which way you you lean today, Jane, as the conversation goes. How are you doing today?
2: I'm excellent, thanks for asking. Um, I'm gonna go back to Pragmatic Innovator today. Because um, what's really interesting to me is how these new tools can help and maybe even reduce the burden of adopting technology. I don't know about that yet, but I am curious to explore that because I think there are going to be some people who just can't wait for whatever new version of these tools come. People like my son, for example, whereas some of us are sort of like, wait, what it does, what? so how do we use these new tools to help people get on board and drive adoption
0: well let's jump right in then Shane ritesh welcome i'm looking at the title on our screen here ritesh it is just chock full of acronyms ai llms ChatGPT, gpt meeting dct uh ritesh that's probably a bit overwhelming for <laughs> for some can you give us a, a little bit of an intro what are we actually talking about here today are we talking about chat gpt and bard or is this is this bigger than just the playful interface that some of us are starting to experiment with online
3: so i think you know we need to separate all of these things that ai has been around for a long long time but it was applied in a sort of structured manner what the excitement around the what we call large language models, LLMs what chat GPT uses, what drug GPT uses, what Bard uses, all of those things are very much around how we've now been able to apply this capability of a machine being able to digest A huge amount of data very very quickly and give us some answers on what we want to do So some people are saying we're entering what we call the prompt economy where you know Just like the google search bar you type something in and very quickly you'll get an answer I'm not sure about that yet, but I would say that Bear in mind artificial intelligence and machine learning has been around. I think I deployed a hotel industry uh, inventory management system AI solution in 1985 on a sequent machine that cost $3 million. So, this has been around a while. The excitement is around the large language models. And what can we do with unstructured data? You know, papers, uh, chart notes on an electronic health record, those kinds of things is where the excitement is.
0: And Ritesh, my apologies. I jumped right in with my enthusiasm. I didn't even let you introduce yourself. Who the heck are you, Ritesh Patel? <laughs> uh, I uh,
3: I live and work out of my house in New Jersey today, in Montclair, New Jersey. I work for a company called Finn Partners, who I joined uh, two years ago in New York, and I've been uh, actively doing healthcare. Uh, and trying to digitize healthcare since 2010 when I joined Inventive Health. Prior to that, my background has all been in IT, big databases. My first job actually uh, was to mine the Visa and MasterCard database at Citibank and overlay demographic, psychographic, lifestyle, and financial information about the individuals so we could market to you better. We invented a thing called the statement stuffer for you old people on this call you may remember those things coming in with your statement with your credit card there you are
1: there you are can we just say what is it that ritesh doesn't do um uh, i will always have to mention that he owns an empire of restaurants that has unbelievable good food in uh, indian food and uh, he told me the other day to my that's the only thing that's made me want to, frankly, go to New Jersey, that he has a secret fish and chip shop at the back, too. So he's, uh, And he's a DJ, so I kind of quite don't know how he fits it all in, but he does like any other high performer, right?
3: <laughs> Thanks, Amir. I think we had a lovely curry dinner last night with a few of us, if I'm not mistaken, Craig. Uh,
0: yeah, easy. I think there's so a, there's a little bit of uh, fish with mango that's my lunch right now, right there, So thank you. Excellent. Um, Look, you know, uh, we we don't do a lot of product placement on TGIF DCT, but Brick Lane Curry House uh, locations around New Jersey will not steer you wrong. And to Amir's share, I I think that's just the back door of the Montclair, New Jersey location for your traditional uh, fish and chips. Is that right, Ritesh?
3: No, yeah, that's right. Uh, We, Jersey City will soon get the fish and chips as well. Montclair is the secret password is required, yes.
1: And and Ritesh has a, uh, has a restaurant in the city, which I will be at in September, so very much looking forward to that.
0: We'll have to keep an eye on uh, on social to see uh, who else can join you at that table, Amir. I'm sure it'll be a nice crowd. And Richie Atwarhu is not a person who's particularly lazy either, usually with a, a dozen different ventures and ideas in the works. Richie, it's great to have you here. Introduce yourself for folks who haven't had the pleasure yet. and it-
4: yep can you uh craig can you hear me now
0: absolutely
4: well good good afternoon everyone and happy friday first of all craig i i did not realize you have such a great radio voice um it's it's actually really really impressive you, you've got a voice for radio my friend and a face for tv um
0: uh well, come I'm on ready. i was gonna do my uh face <laughs> for radio line right there you yeah. stepped on that <laughs>
4: Uh, My name is Richie. Uh, The last five years I've been doing um, ventures, specifically what I consider to be improbable ventures. The one I'm uh, running right now is called Mobius. And the thesis is that you could have an immersive and interactive experience, just like you can get from a VR, AR headset, but on the devices that we own right now. We cracked the code uh, about two years ago and we've been hardening it. Basically it's minority report meets the metaverse. Um, on the devices that you have, your Mac, your PC, etc. That uses a fair amount of deep learning, machine learning, and computer vision. Prior to that, I founded humanity.co. And the thesis there was that human data should be owned as human property, so that we can have fair trade data on top of property law. Um, Natural language processing used there to look at business to consumer contracts, and then um, you know, introduce negotiability to those contracts instead of a, instead of a single I accept button um, and decentralized technologies there for storing the, uh, the property rights and the leasing rights of the data for fair trade data. Prior to that, I was chief digital officer for IQVIA um, where I brought together sales and marketing technology, grew a business from 750 million to 2 billion. And I spent the first 12 years of my career on Wall Street in different technical capacity. So glad to be here. Um, Craig, did you want me to just open up on AI, uh, or how would you like to do this?
0: I think having you open up on AI sounds like a great (laughs) place to start. I imagine there are some folks in our audience that are, uh, some percent of them, as Amir said, that may be wondering, is this the end of my job? To Ritesh's point, is my job changing to be a prompt engineer? Um, So there are definitely workforce questions, but there's a lot of upside opportunity here. How are you framing this? in your conversations with leaders today around the future of AI and their business.
4: So two points of views. One is just like every other big invention we've ever had from fire onwards, there's always a healthy and needed spectrum of opinions upon the the technology. And the spectrum that I like to think about is you've got your realists in the middle, you've got your optimists on the right, you've got your pessimists on the left, and you have your far uh, right are the evangelists, and then far left are your alarmists. So I tend to, I tend to look at the valid opinions that must be there from alarmists to pessimists to realists, optimists and evangelists. Um, and we must have all of those opinions because we have a responsibility for how we implement a technology into culture, obviously. What is unique, and Ratish touched upon this a little bit, What is unique about AI today that was not unique or not there about two years or so uh, ago is the fact that the models are now generative. And generative um, needs to be underscored a little bit so that we can understand what's different and why now. Generative is the basic construct that the model can actually come out with an answer that that seems like something that you did not put into it and 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 you'd go well wait a second you know i used to have predictive analytics back in the day which which is a version of uh, or at least applying artificial intelligence and i would get answers out of it yes but the answers that you got out of that you actually put those answers in there um it's just giving it to you in a faster way uh maybe in a more precise way uh maybe in in a more beautiful design but you've the human has actually put that information in there. What is coming out of these transformer models is that the way the information is coming out, it's almost unrecognizable to what went in. And that's the nature of the generative aspect of it. Um, you can think about it as you know Google being one format of interacting with technology and ChatGPT being a second format. And what's different is that Google is a linear transaction, right? You 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 put um, you know, inquiry in, information out, and that's a single transaction. Whereas ChatGPT is creativity in, inspiration out. You get inspired, you go creativity in again, information uh, inspiration out, and it's a recursive loop that actually has a profound impact on the intelligence and the creative creativity of humans, and so that's what's kind of different here. The other thing that has been moving at the same time, and I just wanna touch on this, is that for the most part, what we've seen before is we were using text in its digitized format, and that's still in the large language models today, but what's different today is anything that's dematerialized, so anything that could be represented digitally can now be modeled, can now be simulated, and can now be generated, whether that's voice data, whether it's DNA, whether it's protein, whether it's molecular structure, that's what's moving at the same time. And these things together create both opportunity and threat.
1: So Richie, one thing you said that I just want to kind of um, talk about, which is you described the normal spectrum of reaction to any new wave of technology. However, I think one thing that I see that's kind of different for this one is that normally the evangelists are not the alarmists, right? And yet here, I find the people that Are closest to this, you know, spend their lives on it. They're the ones who are pulling the sort of fire alarm and really worried about it. And that's a little bit different to usual, where really it's usually the anti tech people who are the alarmists. But in this case, you know, I don't think, I can't think of another technology where the very technology leaders have signed, you know, a large uh, petition saying, can we stop AI and put a pause on it? I've never seen that with any other technological thing. What do you think about that? Well, look, I
4: I think there is two, um, two categories of people that are in the alarmist evangelist world. There are the people, and I'll just, I'll say this, it doesn't mean to be controversial. There are people who actually understand the math, and then there are people who understand the impact of the math, okay? For the people that understand the impact, you'll see them both on the evangelist and the alarmist side. But the people that actually understand the math that is going into the models, into the weights, into the parameters, into the bias, and into the tuning, when you actually understand that it's just mathematics, you, it's hard to, to be an alarmist, no matter where you are on the spectrum. And let me just give an example of what I mean by the mathematics. So if you go into one of the generative models today, and we'll just use a language model instead of an image or, or a sound model, uh, and you say, what's the color of the sky? And, and more than likely, if you don't give it more context at that, it'll come back with blue. And, and what you're like, oh my God, how did it know the sky is blue? And most of us mix performance with competency. What we don't see is that the way the model actually works, this is just a statistical probability of a series of colors. What we don't see is that black could have been the color of the sky, but it, it's not as statistically probable as blue. So it could be orange, so it could be gray, so it could be everything else. And if you look at the model, you go, wait a second, this is just statistical probability of words that could appear, and blue is actually there. If I prompted it with sunset, it'll change to orange. So when you look at the math, and you look at the mathematics that is actually in these models, you start to ask yourself, is math really bad or are people gonna use math in a bad way? I don't think there are people that actually understand the mathematics that are in the evangelist and the alarmist camp. Most of the people that are in those two camps together don't understand the math. Great,
1: thank you. Um, Craig, where do you wanna go next? You know, I'd love to... Sorry, Craig, can I just address a couple of
3: things that Richie has said, if I may? You've got to point this to something. So here's the difference: generative is images, videos, whatever, whatever, whatever. There's the new things. Inference engines have been around for a long time. I used to use an inference engine in 1995, 96, 97 for pattern recognition across vast sets of data, mainly consumer buying data of products to sell to to consumer goods companies. So you know, in Ohio, more people buy Coca-Cola than Pepsi. So hey, Pepsi, do you want to reach these people? We'll show you how. So inference models have been around a while, AI has been around a while, structured data is where it's gone. So you've always had to point to something for the machine to then pick a pattern, do the statistical algorithm, create that model and give you the results. The difference here, and I think the alarmists are looking at it from a, now we can point to anything, right? So I could take a set of really biased data that is very racist in nature and point to it and a result set will come out, which is different. And how do you manage that? So I'm a, one of those eternal optimists and I have what, what somebody coined adorable optimism about all this. And I think that it is up to the humans to figure out what is the bad data and what is the good data. In healthcare particularly, we had this conversation around the around the curry dinner last night. Is it's even more important as we go deeper into this whole decentralized trial healthcare right now But you can point these things to anything, right? I can I can just say, go to YouTube and find all of the videos about Nazis, and then give me a probability of how many Nazis there are in the world. You can do that today.
0: I'd love to. um, I think this has been a great foundation and it sets a lot of great um, ideas in people's minds uh, right now. Let's let's lean this back into the clinical trial space and even into the decentralized trial space, potentially, I think that. There are great use cases today for AI in drug development that many are already starting to realize or experiment with, whether it's around portfolio planning for their molecules. Certainly a lot is happening upstream in drug discovery. But for those that are planning, designing, executing clinical trials, Folks are looking at how and where AI should be a part of the planning and design process, the protocol authoring and making that a data-driven process. How can AI help with Um, opportunities around digital measurements in our trials and starting to develop composite endpoints that are more um, thoughtful than maybe our legacy measures. What about synthetic data in our trials and the prospect of digital twins or places that AI can drive more automation, whether it's generative AI around content generation or other opportunities to automate the process of drug development and so many of the manual steps that we have today. Jane, I know that you've been thinking a lot about these use cases. Is there one in particular that's jumping out to you right now?
2: I think it has a profound opportunity to change how we go about two parts of the clinical trial process, decentralized or others. First, finding where patients are who are A potential fit for trials and second identifying where they might be able to engage with a research site and I'm really curious to see if we can put some things into the model to help us identify the best fit de novo research and sites is a bad term but um, research locations we'll call it that
0: Ritesh, um, I'd love to bounce over to you as you're th- intersecting with so many different organizations around clinical trials and clinical research today. Where are you sensing? Where, where are you most optimistic? Where are you most excited today around bringing either AI in general or these LLMs and uh, in to impact the process?
3: So I think it's in three areas. One is around discovery in general, right? If you look at some of the companies that are coming out in using these frameworks and models for discovery, right? Uh, There is a drug GPT that was invented. I literally tweeted about it this morning in China, which they're using the same large language model capability but have applied it to chemistry for early stage discovery, right? So imagine um, I think there's a company called FormBio in Seattle that's applying this to early stage discovery for rare disease, right? Because you can get very quickly to, you know, all of the the the, the, the chemicals uh, models and then create a process where you can do discovery within a year. So early stage discovery. But what I'm really excited in two areas. One is our patient recruitment. We've always had an issue with patient recruitment. This gives us a capability to mine a large number of things that we never were able to do before. You know, we've used all sorts of tactics, but now we can bring social demographic, electronic health record, mine patient advocacy databases, look at video online of people posting about their their malady and whatever, pull it all together, to create a messaging platform based on who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. So I think large language models will really help in figuring out patient recruitment. And I, you know, there's a couple of academic centers that are already playing with this, where they've created the closed language model that applies to the electronic health record system. And within minutes, you know, a PI can enter a prompt and say, "Here's my inclusion/exclusion criteria." Go find me everybody that meets it from the EHR and the EMR. The other area that I'm excited about, I'm not sure IRB is, is uh, how we can help with the consent process. This is a really good way. I've literally, I've been playing around with Claude. Claude is amazing. I can upload a PDF. 20-page PDF on an informed consent and it will come up with the seven bullet points that are just absolutely critical for the patient to know. So imagine if we could take, uh, and same with the protocol, you can upload a protocol to Claude and it'll come back with the salient points about what this protocol is in, in normal English language. So from a teaching of patient about consent and telling the patient in their words, this is what the trial is about,
1: is very exciting for you because it will change the way we engage with people. So Ritesh, can you for, not everyone may be working with all of these AI servants, tell, us, tell them how they can access Claude. Yeah, please. so Claude is really cool. You go to Claude,
3: C-L-A-U-D-E dot AI. Uh, you can, you know, ask it a question, you can upload a file. Um, I li- recently took, for example, the X-Tandi, uh prescribing information PDF, which is 18 pages, and said to Claude, please summarize this PDF. And it came back with six bullet points about what really are the key prescribing information data a doctor would need, right? Things like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and Craig, to your question, I guess my view of it is, As opposed to asking where can this help in clinical trials and decentralised, my question is where can it not be appropriate? Because frankly, when I think of every component of what we do, I can see a use case for where these models could help us be more efficient, better in so many different ways. So I guess my question honestly is, you know where do we see where this wouldn't be appropriate? I mean, I think. Well, let me uh, let me build riff on that one then,
0: Amir, with Richie, because uh, Richie, there's a, a dark side to some of these tools. Where should we be afraid or have trepidation or additional caution when using some of these approaches, say in a in a clinical trial that uh, involving humans and and their data and the way we operate?
4: Um, I think so. Agreed with uh, with Ritesh's uh, summarization of um, of the opportunities. Well, let me address your question, Craig, uh, Craig, from two perspectives. One is when when you get this sense of personhood from from a generative model, where it feels like there's something more there than just the machine and the software. There's a level of impression that that can leave on a human. Um, where, where you really take that information seriously. Like it means more than when you just read something on the computer, when you type a question in and you get a deeply contextual answer in a very, very, very quick time. Um, these large language models and these generative models by design uh, are a statistical bell curve and they were built by what, what I like to call um, AI candy where when you build a model, a model has something called a loss function that says, hey, you need to operate in the most optimal way and you have to always give me an answer. And here's a good candy for you when you give me an answer. So these models by definition are trained to satisfy humans where they would never say to you, I don't have an answer. It's always gonna give you an answer, which leads to what is to me inappropriately named hallucination, which is just bad statistics. when you when you put that in front of a patient right now the way the models are set up is is the patient could get a really crappy answer and take that answer seriously and and that is an area where i think there's improvement in the ui ux of these models where when when the answer comes back imagine if you ask if you ask a model a a a question as a patient if the answer comes back and it says i'm only 35 percent sure about that answer Right. So if it comes back with the statistical probability of the answer, now, at least for those people who care about statistics, uh, 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 are going to look at that information completely differently. If that statistical information is not there, and if and maybe it could give you here, I'm confident about this one in 35 percent. Here's the answer. I'm only confident in 15 percent. If that's not there, we run the risk of people. listening to AIBS thinking it's actually really good stuff. And I think that's that's not an issue of models per se, and that's definitely not an issue of data because we can talk about data mastery a little bit. It's the UI UX of that interface between the human and the model that has to be evolved, or we run the risk of, of not just misinformation, but putting people who are vul- already vulnerable at risk of interpreting something that is not absolutely correct as if it were.
0: Great setup, great setup. And by the way, um, I I don't think the URL BS.ai is is any longer available. Really unfortunate (laughs) that we missed out on that one. Hey, we are at, oh, go ahead uh, Ritesh, yes.
3: Yes. so. Uh, There are two other pieces on top of what Rich has been talking about. I think there is an ethics issue here that you've got to be mindful of, particularly from a a, um, uh, healthcare perspective uh, around where are you getting this model? Where is it being trained? Um, You know, when we do traditional work, there's always references that are checked and there's always places where you're annotating and you know, you're making sure you're sort of showing the right sources of information uh, when you publish something. And that needs to be done in this model. And I fear that sometimes people, humans get lazy, right? If it's convenient for me to just put in a prompt, hey, can you give me a protocol design template, and off you go, you've got to make sure where the heck did the language model get that protocol template in the first place. And I I worry for healthcare, and particularly in the trial world, that if we rush too quickly, we may not provide the right materials to Richie's point earlier, and we may run deeply into something that will bite
1: us in the back uh, later on. So I think if you read the Peter Lee book uh, on sort of the Microsoft experience, um, they were surprised that how their model without really being trained specifically in the domain of medicine, how good it was in their opinion, right, how, what it did. Now, Google obviously has taken a different approach, right? They've actually gone down the road of a very specific model uh, that's trained on medical information. So it's interesting how different companies are definitely approaching this differently
0: we are at the bottom of the hour and so for our friends that are just joining us here live on clubhouse we'll say welcome you've landed in the decentralized trials club and just a reminder we do gather here every friday 12 to 1 eastern to cover different topics related to decentralized trials and making research more accessible if you're here live on clubhouse you can give a follow to the club Uh, just by tapping Decentralized Trials in the upper left of your screen. Remember from there, you will find replays of conversations like these from over the last year, year and a half. Gosh, how long have we been doing this now? If you're not uh, with us live, you're probably listening to our replay on the Decentralized podcast available on Spotify, Apple, all your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure you're subscribing there because that's how you'll find out about updates and new content that we drop. Uh, The conversations are live here on Clubhouse on Fridays. They drop just a few days later on those podcast platforms. We're also grabbing some of your favorite, most listened to episodes on Clubhouse and getting those pushed out on the podcast as well. Today, we're talking AI, large language models, ChatGPT, BARD. We're talking about who's our who's our french friend claude.ai we're talking about all of these awesome technologies and their use cases starting in healthcare leaned into medicine development leaned into clinical trials leaned into decentralized clinical trials if you've been with us here live before you know this is where we like to open up the room and so if you have questions comments experiences a lot of you are dropping them in the chat which is fabulous bring your voice jump on stage with us right amir Absolutely, Craig.
1: I was just going to mention that you mentioned bs.ai. So um, there's a guy in China called Ju Peng who has registered not only bs.ai, but about a thousand other .ai domains that he's selling. So he's taking a portfolio approach, I guess, that if he hits it big with one of them, selling them. But he basically has a market corner that he's like, take the alphabet and just put .ai under it. He's bought it. So it's really quite fascinating.
0: So you're saying he is squatting on bs.ai? That
1: and another thousand ones, yep, yep. (laughs) I'll
0: have to keep that in mind. (laughs) Hey, it's business and everything, right? Um, You know, one use case that I'll say I'm very excited about while we'll uh, we'll wait and see if anyone has any uh, shares they wanna bring on stage. I'm looking at you, Joe, Dustin, dropping some things there in the chat as an example, Um, but, I think Joe may have had to step out of the room, so we'll have to pull those on stage ourselves. One use case I'm particularly excited about is how in decentralized trials, we know that um, there may be times when a patient is doing some activities on their own, um, but we never want that person to feel that they're being left alone. A decentralized trial done wrong would make a a patient feel isolated and left alone with an investigational medicine and unfamiliar technology. And a decentralized trial done right should make them feel supported, maintain communication with their investigator and study team, and otherwise make sure that their information needs are being met. And it reminded me of this study that uh, I think we mentioned here once before, UCSD researchers with folks from Qualcomm had uh, looked at empathy scores and accuracy scores of ChatGPT sharing medical information with patients when compared with physicians. ChatGPT scoring, I think it was 10 times uh, greater than physicians in the perception of patients in, in delivering messages with empathy. Um, so- Ritesh, you are a longtime chatbot guy. Uh, Amir, I was just going to ask Ritesh about uh, just his perspective on this future. What do you think, Amir?
1: The only thing I was going to comment on here, you know, that paper was interesting, but what I didn't talk about the kind of flaw in it was they were comparing doctors harried by insurance companies having 15 minutes, whatever it is, for a visit or time to follow up with patients versus AI. That you know does not have the insurance company breathing down its neck and can easily be more empathetic. That may mean that in that context, then we should always have AI doing that because they're probably going to have more time uh, to you know be empathetic and to produce it very quickly. It was just an interesting comparison because it was really you know constraint real humans on one side and not constrained machines on the other.
0: Are you suggesting we should run clinical trials where we have people in some artificial situation that we create? Oh, wait, that's exactly what we do every day. (laughs) Ritesh, what are your thoughts on this (laughs) use case?
3: So I think you're on to, obviously, uh, there are maybe two or three areas that if you looked at it, And thought about it methodically, you could do some really interesting things with these large language models. One is around what you've just described: monitoring and support for patients using chatbots, virtual assistants, you know, uh, those kinds of things. At that moment when you need help, you know, the first conversation could be with a bot that was created using a large language model, and then you can go into a virtual assistant of some sort, and then you can get to the you know the CRA or the PI or whatever, but it could be a reminder thing. A lot of applications around protocol deviation management, right? What do you? When we get protocol deviations, they're around things like, uh, you shouldn't have eaten this morning. Why did you eat? Right now, I'm going to log it. Or hey, you couldn't get back to get to get your appointment done. Well, you can collect it remotely data collection is another one you know we struggle with apis well llms can just you can just point the thing to a set of data and say okay these this patient set has the data in the electronic health records it's being captured this uh, patient set has wearables where we're collecting the data somewhere else um i think and then patient retention is another one i i look at and how can we continually engage with them using these chatbots and virtual assistants from these models uh, and not have the burden put on the CRA to make an outbound phone call or a text message or an email of some sort, right? So continuing, you could basically code it and say, on Tuesdays at 2, make sure you get in touch with Craig via this method, because that's what he's said he wants to be contacted with uh, and engage with him and make sure he's okay. And if something untoward is seen within that algorithm, then make sure you alert me. So it changes the way we're retaining and engaging with patients within a trial as well. Those are some examples that I've been working on and excited about.
0: Love to hear it. Thanks so much, Ritesh. We have a guest here on stage with us, Renee. It's great to see you here. Take a moment, introduce yourself if anyone hasn't had the pleasure, share your thoughts on today's topic. And Renee, if you're new with us on Clubhouse, your unmute buttons in the lower right, there you go.
5: Thanks, Craig. I was just panicking. It's been a little while since I've been on here. Thanks for the heads up on that unmute button. It's always important to know where that is. Thanks for also having this discussion, everyone. My name's Renee Gruber. Um, I love I look forward to this all week. I love these conversations. So thank you so much for having them number one and sparking the conversations and being leaders in this arena. I mean, the information that's being shared today is just outstanding. So Richie, I love what you were saying about presenting uh, their percentage of confidence and answers with AI. I mean, there's just so much we need to do here. So thank you again. Um, Again, my name is Renee Gruber, so I I wanted to jump on here and talk about what Jane said earlier. She kind of dropped a really good golden nugget um, in the beginning of the conversation saying that or hoping that AI and these tools that we now have may reduce the burden of adopting new tech. And I'm hopeful for that as well. Uh, What I wanted to say about that is that I think there's a large intersection between what people think of AI and automation, right? So Ritesh, you're just talking about triggering personalized conversations depending on maybe a patient's schedule. Um, a lot of that falls under the automation umbrella. And I think we ha- may have more tools at our disposal currently than we think. Um, AI is fantastic. And I think there's you know, a conversation to educate the greater masses about what the distinction between those things are and um and utilizing the tools and it comes back to the user experience the patient experience like you were just saying Ritesh and, and richie really understanding how to speak with them give them a vip service right when you're recruiting patients because it's so important and truly they should own the data like you said richie so i just appreciate this conversation and would love to hear your thoughts on the intersection of AI and automation,
0: Richie, you want to get us started?
4: Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a couple of points, and I'll answer the the question at the same time. Um, AI, like every other technology, is a 10K. It, it's it's a 10K marathon, and I would say we're about at a 300 meter yard so far in the journey to AI. Um, We're at the stage right now where we're doing what I like to call the lift and shift uh, uh, period of a new technology. Um, You may remember lift and shift from, you know, when the internet first came out, everybody just took their paper menus and brochures and digitized it and put it on a website, right, Um, lift and shift. But eventually what happens is that the technology permeates into processes and then eventually changes business models. Now, I don't know the business model of clinical trials, but I do wanna give you an example of a business model change in healthcare to at least inspire this group to get a little bit past the lift and shift where we're thinking about how AI can actually impact what we do today versus how it might enable what we could do tomorrow from a model perspective and a business model perspective. So if you think about imaging in healthcare, um MoIs and GI. Um, so so G- with GI imaging, a human misses um, 20% of the polyps. A-, a human just doesn't see uh twenty uh, percent uh, of the polyps in imaging. Uh, a-, a sophisticated computer vision model that has been trained on you know a couple of thousand images misses about three percent of the polyps. Okay, so you've got a 17% spread there. And and this one's probably quotable tweetable. Five years from now, if you're practicing GI without AI, where your humans are missing 20% of the polyps and there's AI in the market that only misses three, are you now susceptible to malpractice, All right? And so as, as we think about the technology, I would encourage everyone to do the lift and shift for sure. Think about what we do today and how we can improve what we do today, but at the same time recognize that there's business model shifts that are coming down the pipe over time, and that's the first point. If you just give me another uh, minute or so to make a second point, um, we talked a little bit coming into this of, of, on the future of work and the future of experience. Um, I think I think we should automate everything we can possibly automate. Why would we not? And I I asked the question, why would we not? Because I think back to Peter Drucker, and I think back to how you know Drucker kind of kind of codified for us that we would move from manual workers to knowledge workers and, and if, if, you, if you're not familiar with, with this particular druggerism, my grandfather, you know, was a carpenter or a farmer and here I am working on computers, you know, those are physical strengths, these are intellectual strengths. And, and it was technology that got us there. The motor was introduced, which commoditized labor work and the, and the personal computer was introduced which commoditized information sharing. And as a species, we moved from manual work to knowledge work. Nobody wants to go back, nobody would go back. I see the Goldilocks conditions again, for us to take one of those other leaps where we're gonna move from knowledge workers to what I call visionary workers, where it's no longer about sharing information, but sharing your imagination. And I think that we should automate the heck out of anything that could be automated right now and not just worry about, could I replicate one of these documents? I forgot the acronym that was used for a document, an IRB, but to start to envision what other things could be replicated to really start to focus on the imagination and the creative aspects of work that's coming, because I think that's where the opportunity really is past the lift and shift phase.
5: Wow,
0: there's some great pearls there, Jane. I mean, from the uh, incremental lift and shift to keeping the eyes on the more radical, uh, automating everything along the way. What are some of your thoughts as you're uh, reflecting both on Renee's uh, perspective that I know lit up some fire in your uh, little bubble here on Clubhouse, but also where Richie was headed?
2: Um, Well, first, to Richie's point, I was having this conversation with my dentist yesterday, and he was asking. His wife is in insurance and was sort of a chat GPT disbeliever, and so he helped her get set up so she would ask a really complicated prompt to, I think it was OpenAI, and she had to acknowledge that the machine gave at least as good an answer as anything she could have generated. So. That was a conversion in situ, like in five seconds. I also wanted to just call out what Richie's talking about, like this shift, lift and shift mentality and how we could do better. I found it really interesting as my son and his peers were thinking about what things they wanted to study in university, the concept of sustainability of their work and how these tools could unlock their potential was a big part of what they were thinking about. It wasn't necessarily from fear. But pragmatically, they eliminated a whole lot of things that they thought, well, that's just not going to exist in five years. So I wonder if there's something very different in the way that people are thinking about this based on how early it entered their lives.
0: Ritesh, I, I, oh, uh, Richie, I, I see you're coming off, and then Ritesh, I'd love to hear your reflection on this, Richie. Uh,
4: Ritesh first.
3: <laughs> so I think, yeah, I t- totally agree with Richie. Uh, I was actually going to put it in the chat. Uh, you know, it this reminds me of Web 1.0. It really is that kind of moment where we started off with this let's just put our catalogue online or oh, i remember a board meeting where we were presenting to the board of colgate palm and we had to bring a computer in and look, hook it up to a telephone to show them their new website colgate.com and the board were just amazed that somebody from england could now look at their product line on a computer uh from uh, england into america so What can we do next? So the lift and shift occurred for a year or two. But 1997, we started selling airline tickets online, British Airways, and 30% of the revenue started coming from internet. And all of a sudden, the travel agents were up in arms. And we know what happened to the travel agency industry shortly thereafter. So I think there are going to be some models that will appear that we should think about there are others where it's perfectly fine to do a lift and shift or even change a process and automate it. so I would advise do the incrementals take some of the examples I talked about you know basics that cause chaos because we're relying on a human to remember to do something and let the machine do it because it's pretty capable of doing that Appointment reminders, you know, avoiding protocol deviations, that sort of thing. But then there are other areas, for example, trial design, protocol trial design and using best practices. So you don't have to do it over and over again and write it 150 different times. Right. That saves you a lot of time and money. But then it will also change the way you hire people. The kind of people you hire will be completely different. Uh, And then you can go into the big change, the disrupting change that could occur. And there's a couple of those that i know richie has got a few examples of but that's the way i would approach this is there are some basics you could do fairly quickly today you know in, in in the content world in the advertising agency world i do another one of these around the impact of generative on the ad business and i can tell you on the ad business side it's going to be brutal because there's a bunch of people that create a bunch of content that will really be uh in for a shock when the machine does it a lot better a year from now or two years from now. So that industry is going to be completely upended. So how do we sort of look at that as well?
4: So, so Ritesh, this is where, uh, and Craig and Amir and, and, and uh, Jane. Jane, I want to go back to your point about education in a second. This is where I think it's really important for us to all take a breath and remember that as a species we've gone through transitions like this before there's no doubt in my mind that marketing and branding and copywriting is going to get commoditized but just like we've done as a species before those people will find work and and they will find uh in many times more fulfilling work and and i think the 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 silver lining for me is, and I'll just repeat this for, for emphasis, just like we went from manual work to knowledge work, we're gonna go from knowledge work to visionary work. And that means that if we're gonna fundamentally change what we do to be protect, productive and have utility, um, everything about society is gonna change from education all the way through. Um, you know, the, the education system is barely catching up to STEM and STEAM. For the knowledge worker, you know, we're gonna need to move faster because I think this reset is gonna be faster because it's digitized. The second, the second point I wanna make is that a lot of us have only been focusing on single modalities, which is here's text or, or you know, actually mostly text or here's audio and I'll give you a great audio example in a second there there is more opportunity in the multi-modality models that can process text and image and sound at the same time and create really unique outputs let me share an audio an audio example um so so at the mayo clinic and i got this from someone else i actually don't know this firsthand um but it's it's a reputable source at the mayo clinic um there are three three individuals that can that can um, listen to someone's voice and and figure out whether they have Parkinson's or ALS, I think. And you you can't scale those three individuals across the rest of the world. But at the Mayo Clinic, I think they took 10,000 voices, um, trained up a model, and then had these three experts fine tune that model. And then they built a mobile app where now anyone in the world can download that mobile app, speak into it, and get a fairly sophisticated evaluation of whether they're predisposed to Parkinson's or ALS. Um, That type of distribution and decentralization of capabilities is another opportunity for clinical trials where now there are things that once could not be exposed in a person's home that could be exposed through the work that some of these models can do, sound being an example there. the, The better instrumentation that you have at the home, it's more interesting now because of these multimodal models where in the past we could capture a whole bunch of data and look. We've had a lot of data on people for a while in healthcare, but now you can actually do something with it. And that do something with it is gonna transcend these single modality models, like just text only or audio only. It's gonna be the multi-modality where the real value will come.
3: Craig, for folks on this call, one of the things I would encourage everyone to do, and I've been on this evangelism thing, get every CRA trained up on this take one model, right, and start getting the CRAs to start using it. Because the guys at the cliff face on a day to day who are harried and are doing 62 things during the day for a study will figure out because it is human ingenuity, right, that if I do this and use this tool, I'm going to change the way I do this. And I think encouraging people to start uh, getting those people who are actually doing that work, playing with these tools, and then looking at ways they can use these tools to make their day better, will ch- start beginning that process of then how can we really change?
0: So, I oh, go ahead, I was Jane. just
2: gonna say, Ritesh, I love that concept. Now the pragmatist in me is like, and so many of them can't even access Google.
3: I I know.
2: Help us, like let's talk about that another day.
0: Well, I feel like so many of these tools are getting embedded as copilots for me, and the email app that I'm using in my, my in my Google Doc instance. Um, but to your point, Ritesh, we don't have to wait for it to become embedded in the software no. that the CRA is using. The, exactly. the agile CRAs, the CRA workforce that, that wants to lean forward and be um, resilient and ready for the future can start to, um, can start to cross over and work with these tools today as long as they're not uploading protected patient information or proprietary company information.
5: Do you mind if I speak to that, Craig? I don't know if I can jump in here.
0: Renee, you absolutely can.
5: (laughs) Thank you. I don't want to overstep. Um, The conversation, like I said, just gets me uh, very excited with everything that's happening here and the, and it's so important. So um, what I wanted to say back to Ritesh's point of, of implementing these things for CRAs to be able to utilize them. I mean, they're so busy. You guys know that, right? I would, studies i see it day to day Um, they just have so much on their plates and they from what i've seen they really do care about the patients which is fantastic but they're overtaxed you know figuring out inclusion exclusion just the protocols i mean there's so many things that they have on their hands so what i've been on a mission to do in the last gosh six years i think um, is implement things to make that easier and really simplify the tools. Like Jane, you just said, they have a hard time using Google and things. Um, yeah, sure, that can be true, but simplicity, if we can get to a simplicity learning stage that helps them in their day, once they catch on, they're very loyal. You know, They want to do better. They want to have it be easier. So I've been on a mission to simplify things into bite-sized pieces and utilizing automation in a way that makes the CRA's days easier Simple tiny things like just uh, automating a lead follow-up, for instance, so we do like text, voicemail drop, and email as soon as a lead comes in. That little tiny thing can cascade into so many larger impacts and, and get to a point where it helps the patient have more of a concierge type experience where they feel important. So you know you, you automate that portion, the staff feels better, gives them a little bit of time back, you maintain that staff and retain them for longer, They get better at their jobs i mean there's just such a cascade of effects there and uh yeah so again thank you for the conversation it's been fantastic
0: thank you renee i really appreciate it and thank you to our guest this week ritesh patel richie edwar who thank you renee for jumping up here on stage i was remiss in not dropping a line that amir um has reminded me of in the past Be sure to click some of these profiles, follow some of these voices on social, in particular on LinkedIn or or Twitter. Maybe you guys are on threads now too, but um, these are some fabulous voices on these topics to, uh, to follow online. The perspectives that they share are Brilliant, and I'm very grateful for having both you, uh, Ritesh, and Richie, join us here today. Certainly, the folks that kept the chat going and active for those here on Clubhouse, Shalon, Archana. Uh, Joe, Brian, absolutely appreciate. And Kevin, the perspectives that you were dropping in there as well. Uh, We have a quick programming note I'll add. We'll be here on Clubhouse Live in July. So another two weeks here. We're going to take August off for the live shows and continue to drop uh, top replays. Uh, back for the community on the podcast channels. Be sure to follow, subscribe on the Decentralized Podcast. Amir, any closing word?
1: Uh, Just thanks to everyone. And I just recommend if you're interested in AI threats, I highly recommend you look up Mo Goudat, who used to work at Google X. He's written some really good stuff on it. He's been on some podcasts, but he is really good at explaining the threats for sure. So my last recommendation to everyone.
0: Well, Amir, maybe you could drop that out on Twitter or LinkedIn if there's a good link for folks and they can uh, click that through social. Thanks again, Ritesh and Richie. Have a great week, everybody.